All right. Um, well, hello and welcome again to Citizens. Uh, you know, it's really a special thing that uh, what's happening here at Citizens to have so many college students. Um, I began my ministry journey actually doing college and to see so many students come to uh, come to church on Sundays is quite rare. Uh, I have peers in other ministries that uh, tell me that college students aren't coming to church, but yet we have the opposite uh, good problem here. And so if you're in the area of UCLA or USC, really want to encourage you to serve, uh, even if it's just one, once a month, uh, that you can do that. Uh, but again, my name is David. I go by DC. I serve as one of the pastors here on staff. Uh, always a joy to worship with our community together. If today's your first Sunday, special welcome to you. It can feel quite overwhelming, especially after service, because there are a lot of people here. I want to invite you to check out our hospitality tent outside. You'll see some of our staff members walking around, as well as some of our volunteers, uh, to answer any questions and to connect with you. Uh, so please uh, go ahead and do that. Back in September, uh, we started a year-long sermon series uh, titled Childlike Wonder. And the heart behind this series uh, was to reignite curiosity, awe, and fascination when it comes to God and his word. And so what we decided to do, we took a children's book called the Jesus Storybook Bible. And we've been using it as a template uh, to learn about the major stories and major movements of scripture uh, so that we can learn about God and the good news. And so every one of our sermons and titles correlates with a chapter from that book. And I, I think we still have a few books outside for purchase. And I highly recommend it for both uh, children and adults. Today's title is The Present. And you can think of today's sermon as part two of last week's message, The Son of Laughter, The Child of Laughter. And there are very, these sermons are very closely related. So if you have your Bibles... Please uh, turn with me to Genesis chapter 22. I'm reading from the NIV, so you can select your translations there. It's going to be up on the screen behind me for you to follow along. Let's give our full attention as I read God's word for us. Sometime later, God tested Abraham. He said to him, Abraham, here I am, he replied. Then God said, take your son, your only son, whom you love, Isaac, and go to the region of Moriah. Sacrifice him there as a burnt offering on a mountain. I will show you. Early the next morning, Abram got up and loaded his donkey. He took with him two of his servants and his son Isaac. When he had cut enough wood for the burnt offering, he set out for the place God had told him about. On the third day, Abram looked up and saw the place in the distance. He said to his servants, stay here. Uh, stay here with the donkey while I and the boy go over there. We will worship and then we will come back to you. Abraham took the, uh, took the wood for the burnt offering and placed it on his son Isaac, and he himself carried the fire and the knife. As the two of them went on together, Isaac spoke up and said to his father, Abraham, Father, yes, my son, Abraham replied, the fire and wood are here, Isaac said, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? Abraham answered, God himself will provide the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. And the two of them went on together. When they reached the place God had told them about, Abraham built an altar there and arranged the wood on it. He bound his son Isaac and laid, on, laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Then he reached out his hand and took the knife to slay his son. But the angel of the Lord called out to him from heaven, Abraham, Abraham, here I am, he replied. 
Do not lay a hand on the boy, he said. Do not do anything to him. Now I know that you fear God, because you have not withheld your withheld from me your son, your only son. Abraham looked up, and there in a thicket he saw a ram caught by its horns. He went over and took the ram and sacrificed it as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called the place the Lord will provide. And to this day it said, on the mountain of the Lord it will be provided. This is God's word. Amen. Let me say a quick word of prayer for us. Holy Spirit, we invite you into this place. Help us, Lord, open up our ears and our hearts to receive what you have for us. Help me, Lord, to communicate your truth faithfully. And we ask that, that most of all, that we'll get to know you better today. So may you increase in this place. We thank you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. What is the thing, if God were to ask you to give up, that you would actually contemplate leaving the faith altogether. What is that one thing? It might be a relationship. It might be a person. It might actually be a thing. That if God asked you to give up completely, where you'd be like, I'm out. I'm done with this faith thing. And you just leave the church. And I think this might be that for me. Um, Talk about an impossible ask. What in the world is going on here? You know, I love watching um, reaction videos. It's really silly because you're basically watching someone watching something and just looking at their expressions. Uh, but I, I can't get enough of it. And so whether it's like a K-pop music video release and people reacting to that or a movie scene or even an episode, I love looking at people's expressions and, and what they have to say about the video, right? Uh, I think Genesis 22 would be perfect for that, right? Unthinkable, utter shock, a twist that no one saw coming. How can God ask of this from Abraham? And so I was thinking, what are some of the reactions that we can have to this crazy story? Reaction number one. We just kind of completely disregard the story. We disconnect from it. I'm not Abraham. I didn't wait 25 years for a son. This was back then. This is now. No relevance. And so we treat the story as a myth, and you just kind of move on. One possible reaction. Second possible reaction. Some of us will read this and be like, see, that's why I can't get too close to God. That's why I don't want to grow my faith too much, because God's going to ask me, something crazy like what he's asking Abraham to do. And so, you know, growing up, I, you know, in the church, I grew up in the church, and I had some friends whose greatest fear was being called to the mission field. Like, they were so afraid that they would be one of those that God would call to go out to India or, or somewhere far away and, and do missions. And so what they did was they kind of managed the level of spirituality just to be enough to not be considered for that call. Right? It's just crazy. And recently someone told me uh, that um, someone shared the story with me that they asked their mother-in-law to stop praying for them. Please, stop praying for me. Because that person had a fear that through the mother-in-law's prayer 
that God would kind of mess things up in their lives. Things have been going well, so stop praying for me. All right, to stay a safe, safe distance from God. All right? So what's an appropriate response? What's an appropriate reaction to a story like this? And is there anything relevant for us between Abraham and his, this situation with Isaac? You know, there's an intimate connection that Christians have with Abraham. You know, there's a popular children's song. You know, Father Abraham had many sons, had many sons, had Father Abraham. I am one of them, so are you. So let's all praise the Lord. And it's a really silly and fun song, but there is truth to that song. We have a deep connection, an intimate connection with Abraham. We have a shared faith with him. And Paul talks about this in his letter to the Galatian church. Galatians 3, 7 through 9. Understand then that those who have faith are children of Abraham. Scripture foresaw that God would justify the Gentiles by faith and announce the gospel in advance to Abraham. All nations will be blessed through you. So those who rely on faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. You know, one of the greatest qualities that we see in Abraham was his faith. He trusted in God. And what we learn from Abraham's life and his journey is that more than anything, what God desires and longs from us is, this, is our trust, is our faith. Hebrews 11.6 tells us that it's impossible to please God without faith. I think about that. So you can come to church every Sunday. You can even serve. You can even give. But if our heart's, heart's posture isn't trust towards God, we can't please him. And this is true for my relationship with my kids as well. There's nothing that pains me more when my kids can't trust me with their pain. And I have to actually draw it out. Please, tell me what's wrong. And I'm equally as joyed when they do come to me with their pain. See, the whole of Christian life hinges on this thing called faith. This is what makes Christianity unique. It's faith. It's not your duty it's not religiosity, it's faith, it's trust. So how does this work? How does this faith thing work? What can you and I expect in this faith journey? And how can we journey well and finish well? And I want to try and answer these questions for us today. So how does it work? So last week we were introduced to Abram and Sarai. And at face value, nothing stands out about this family. Because right, unlike Noah, right, for Noah, at least we had righteous and blameless. He was known to be righteous and blameless. With Abram and Sarai, we don't get anything like that. And actually his background is a little suspect. He probably comes from a long line of people that worshipped pagan gods. He probably grew up worshipping the moon. That's where he was from. That's his background story. But yet God comes to him. And so you will think, man, this is not a good start. Because when you look at God's plan of redemption, he calls individuals and families to kind of restore the things that have been broken. And you look at this family, and you're like, really? Abram and Sarai, who come from a pagan background? But then when we read the story, we, we notice something immediately. See, unlike Noah, who received God's covenant blessing promises, 
after the flood, after completing the mission, with Abram and Sarai, the promise is front-loaded. Before they did anything, before they completed any task, God makes an amazing, impossible promise to them. Genesis 12, 2-3. I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you. I'll make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I'll bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, I will curse. And all the peoples of the earth will be blessed through you. Crazy. Before doing anything, God makes this unconditional promise to Abram and Sarai. Now this is crazy because Abram was 75. Sarai was 74. And when, we're get, when we are introduced to them at the end of chapter 11, we're told that Sarai is barren. She can't have children. So how is a nation going to come through this family? It's impossible. But despite the impossibility, Abram, we're told, we're told that he believed. He trusted in God's promise and his faith journey began. And so God's promise became an itinerary for their life. It set expectations. It helped them navigate through all their frustrations, delays after delays, disappointments after disappointments, and heartache. God's promise was an itinerary. Faith starts not with performance, but first with a promise that God gives to us. You know, marriage is probably one of the best examples of this, right? Two people make these crazy promises to one another. But after making those promises, something happens very dramatically. You change, right? I'm no longer a single bachelor, but after I say my vows, I immediately become, what? A husband. But what's crazy about these promises and what's so amazing about these promises, it creates an environment, a safe environment for us to stumble our way in discovering what it actually means to be a husband. Right Back in 2010, I had no idea how to husband. I, I, I didn't know what that meant. But these promises create safe, a safe environment for me to figure it out. And to be honest, I'm still figuring it out. You know, marriage is not like dating. Because dating, to be honest, is probation. It's, you're on probation. You're trying to prove yourself to be marriage material. And it's so anxiety-inducing because at any point in time, your partner can press the eject button. I'm done. Faith is not dating. Our faith journey is marriage. We're not trying to prove ourselves to receive the promise, but in receiving the promise, we are now trying to and, and trying to live into this promise that God has given us, this new relationship. See, the husband that I am now is not the same husband 13 years ago, but also I was no less a husband in 2010 than now either. I've only grown as a husband. And our faith journey is the same. Faith doesn't start with us, our actions and decisions. Abraham didn't go looking for God. God found him first 
And God made this unconditional promise to him. You know, I think a lot of us, we think that I have to figure everything out in order for me to have faith. Right? We have to have all our questions answered. But that's not what we see in Abraham's journey. Instead, we see him taking one step at a time, discovering and uncovering the realities of God's promise. So when we read Genesis 22, we have to keep in mind this promise that God made in Genesis 12. And Abraham's faith journey for the past 25 years. There are reasons why we find Abraham, Abraham at Moriah holding a knife, getting ready to slay his son. Abraham's step towards God's promise led him to Moriah. Now, you may be sitting there thinking, oh, okay, that's not comforting. That's actually quite scary. And so this brings us to our second question. What can we expect in our faith journey? So 25 years of promise, that's 25 years from promise given to promise fulfilled. A lot has happened within those 25 years, both triumphs and failures. Let me share a few. You know, Abraham, being the father of faith, messed up a lot. He sold out his wife, not once, but twice to foreign rulers out of fear. Utter failure. But we also see amazing things. God changed Abram and Sarai's name to Abraham and Sarah, giving them a new identity. Abraham successfully retrieved his nephew Lot from captivity, from Sodom. Amazing victory. But after waiting 10 years, they get restless. Sarah tells Abraham to sleep with his, uh, her servant. And they have a son, Ishmael. And this brought brokenness within the family, dysfunction and chaos within the family. But we also see amazing things happen with Abram again. He encounters kings and rulers that bless him with riches. And so he's a wealthy man at this point. And when God visits Abraham and Sarah again, reminding them of this promise, what does Sarah do? She laughs and she even lies about laughing. And that they also witnessed the total destruction of two cities. And now, at the ripe age of 199, God fulfills his promise. They have their son, Isaac. And you would think, the end. Happily ever after. Roll the credits, right? Nope. God wasn't done with Abraham yet. Verse 2 of our passage. Then God said, take your son your only son, whom you love, Isaac, and go to the region of Moriah. Sacrifice him there as a burnt offering on a mountain. I will show you. Man, this is so rough. This is so rough. Because even the language, God want, wanted to make it very clear, crystal clear who he was asking for. Not Ishmael. Not Ishmael, but Isaac. The son whom you love. The son of promise. The blessing, I want you to give me Isaac. What's going on here? And even how the story is told, we're not, given, we're not given any insight or specifics of what's going through Abraham's mind and his heart at this point. And so we have to put ourselves in the position of a dad. Like imagine Abraham's heart just completely sinking. 
I would have been sick to my stomach if God asked me to sacrifice my son deacon. But we hear that there was no protest, no arguing. Abraham wakes up the next day early, probably because he hasn't slept. And he starts making preparations. And to draw out the agony, it takes three days for them to get to Moriah. And then verse 5. And he said to his servants, stay here with the donkey while I and the boy go over there. We will worship and then we will come back to you. So interesting. Right? Some will read this and say, wow. Look at Abraham's faith. He believed that they both would return back to that place. So I'm not sure if that's actually the right reading of what's going on here. You know, Jane and I, there was a time when our kids couldn't spell or read. And and so we would spell things out so that they wouldn't understand what we were talking about. And so, for example, we will say, hey, you want to grab I-C-E-C-R-E-A-M after the kids go down? Right? Because we don't want them to know and get all excited because, you know, the parents are going to get ice cream. I know we're bad parents, but, you know, that's what we would do to not let them know. Like, what was Abraham supposed to say in front of his son when his servants were asking, where are you going? What are you doing? Was he supposed to say, wait here while I go slaughter my son? He needed to be discreet. And we know that this wasn't the first time that Abraham and Isaac worshipped together. Because Isaac noticed something's missing. Verse 7, Isaac spoke up and said to his father Abraham, Father, yes, my son. Abraham replied, the fire and wood are here. Isaac said, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? Can you imagine being asked this? And yet another puzzling response. Verse 8, Abraham answered, God himself will provide the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. And the two of them went on together. I think this is real. I think Abraham really believed that God would provide. But that still left him the task to carry out what God asked him to do. Obedience was still on the list of things that he needed to do. And so we're told that he proceeds. He gets everything ready. And by this time, he's probably shaking and drenched in his own tears as he binds his son Isaac and lays him on the altar. And as he lifts the knife ready to kill his own son, verse 11, but the angel of the Lord called out to him from heaven, Abraham, Abraham, here I am, he replied. Do not lay a hand on the boy, he said. Do not do anything to him. Now I know that you fear God because you have not withheld from me your son, your only son. Right, this this is awesome, right? God intervened. God stopped Abraham from killing Isaac. Isaac. Right? Relief, immediate relief. But if you're listening to this story, there's actually immediate confusion and dissonance. What do you mean now you know? Aren't you God? Aren't you omniscient? Don't you know everything from past, present, eternity? What do you mean now you know? 
Couldn't you have played things out in your mind? Right? In your infinite sovereignty, just play things out. You knew what I would have done. Couldn't you have saved all this time and saved me some torment? Because you already knew. What do you mean now you know? So confusing, right? How do we make sense of this? You know, last week, you know, Jason shared that faith is more about relationship than results. God absolutely knew what Abraham was going to do. He knew that he would go through with it. But he wanted to see it. He wanted to hear it. And he wanted to experience it. Because to know is one thing, but to experience is completely different. You know, Jane and I, we started dating um, in 2009. And it's been about six or seven months since we've been dating. And we were already talking about getting engaged. We, we moved very quickly. Um, and so I thought, you know, things are getting real. Maybe now is an appropriate time for me to drop the L word, right? Because we haven't said love before to each other. And so we were on a phone call, and just as, just as we're about to hang up, I, I hit her with, I love you, right? And naturally expecting to hear, I love you too. But that's not what I got. I got a very long and awkward pause, right? And something to the extent of, I don't remember completely, but something to the extent of, she goes, um, there's no ring on it yet. Right? Savage. Savage, right? And I was like, ooh, that's the last time I'm going to say I love you to her. <laughs> but for Jane, she took this word very seriously. She took it very seriously. It was more than just a word for her. She wanted to know not just know that I loved her, but she wants to see and experience and watch me love her. And she didn't want to just cheaply say back to me, I love you too. Right? It's respect. Looking back, it was hurtful. But now, looking back, I mean, like, I respect that. Because you could say that so easily, and it can be so cheap. Jane wanted to see my commitment to her. And so then, of course, I got the ring. I proposed. We're engaged. And for the first time, she said, I love you too. And I shared this before, but my first year of, of marriage, I relapsed pretty bad from an addiction that I, I struggled with when I was in college. I betrayed Jane. I, I betrayed her trust. I hurt her deeply. But the next day I woke up, she was still next to me. The next day, again, she was still there. The day after that, the day after that. You know, this idea of better or for worse, again, promises. It's completely different when I actually experienced it. Jane has seen me at my worst, and she continues to see the layers of my depravity, but yet she's, there next, she's still there next to me. God knew that Abraham would obey, 
but he wanted to experience it for himself because it's about relationship. It's about relationship. So when you look at your faith journey, and if you're a Christian here, what you can expect is to be tested. God will send assignments. He will send tests your way. But this testing is not the type of test where you need to pass or prove yourself, but rather, rather a test to refine what God has already defined about your life. Right? Because there's two different types of tests that we experience in this world. One where we need to pass and prove ourselves, but another type of test that refines. It's the latter. This test is not to prove our worth, but instead to remind us of our worth. Now, what, is, what do I mean by that? How does this work? You know, there's something called structural testing, right? Architects, contractors, they got to figure out if, if this building will remain standing after all the different elements. Right? Will, it, will it remain standing after an earthquake, a storm, a hurricane? Structural testing. Right? Will it withstand intense stress? Will it survive? God's testing is the same for you and me. To see the structural integrity of the things we are building our lives upon. The question is, what is your foundation? What is the source, the substance of your faith? What is the source of meaning and worth for you? Another way to ask this is on what altar are you offering sacrifices? On what altar are you regularly offering sacrifices? If your altar is success and fame, you may find yourself regularly offering good things on this altar, like time with your family, time with your spouse, maybe even your own integrity. If your altar is family and your kids, then you're going to be regularly offering other things, right, to appease these gods that we worship, maybe your friendship, maybe community, maybe even your relationship with God you are willing to sacrifice for family. If your altar is acceptance and approval, you will find yourself regularly being dishonest, sacrificing honesty and truthfulness to present yourself a certain way. See, we don't have an option. We don't have an option whether we sacrifice or not. We all sacrifice. Why? Because we were created this way, to want meaning, to want to feel worthy, to be significant. And so we look to these things and we build these altars thinking that if I just sacrifice, I can get that. See, God at times will shake and test the durabilities of these altars that we have. He will allow us to experience disappointment and frustration. And out of love, out of love, he will even send pain and suffering to expose the insufficient nature of the objects of our worship. And he's telling telling you and me, you're worth more than that. Don't sell yourself short. You're worth more than these things.
See, although Abraham deeply loved and cherished Isaac, he was, his, he was a promised son. His act of obedience demonstrated that his ultimate trust was in the one who provided Isaac. And Abraham fully believed that God could and would provide again. See, God was his foundation. And the reason why he was willing to go through with the sacrifice is because he believed that God could provide again. You know, the author of Hebrews explains what was going on here in Abraham's mind. Hebrews, 11, chap uh, Hebrews chapter 11, verse 19. Abraham reasoned that God would even raise the dead. And so in a manner of speaking, he did receive Isaac back from death. Abraham knew that even if he were to kill his son, that God could resurrect him. Where did he get, where did he get this idea from? Sarah was barren. God brought to life what was dead. He believed that God could do the same with Isaac. Amazing. Our journey of faith will have ups and downs, triumphs and failures. There will be tests that God sends our way. But it is ultimately to refine what he already defined for us. To help us see that only in him can we experience true rest, lasting joy. Abraham journeyed well, and he finished well. How do we do the same? Verse 13, Abraham looked up, and there in a thicket he saw a ram caught by its horns. He went over and took the ram and sacrificed it as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called the place the Lord will provide. And to this day it is said, on the mountain of the Lord, it will be provided. How do we, how do, we do this? How do we finish well? So crazy. As Abraham and Isaac was making one, uh, their way, one way up the mountain, God already was sending a ram on the other side of the mountain. This was all planned out by God. And he provided a ram in place of Isaac. You know, some 2,000 years later from this incident, and for us, 2,000 years ago, this same region, Moriah, is now known as the city of Jerusalem. And God would ask for another sacrifice. But this time, a man would make a solo trek up a similar mountain. He, too, would be asked to carry the very instrument of his own sacrifice. But instead of being bound and laid on an altar, he'll be erected on a, a vertical altar on the cross. And unlike at Moriah, there will be no intervention, no interruption, no voice from heaven stopping, stopping the slaughter of Jesus. Even though Jesus cried out to his father, all he got was silence. The guiltless son of God was not spared, but he was ransomed as a substitute in my place, in your place, for the sins we committed so that we can have God as our father. He was a lamb of God, slain for my sins and yours. 
But the amazing thing is he wouldn't remain dead. After three days, he rose from the grave, vindicating himself, overcoming the very things that stood in the way of us experiencing God as our Father. He overcame sin, death itself, and Satan. How do you know? How do you know that God loves you? How do you know that his promises are real? It's the cross. There's evidence of his love for you. And so if you're here today and you haven't received this promise, you haven't taken a step in living into this amazing promise, the invitation is yours. Respond. Consider Jesus today. You don't have to do anything. It's not performance. It's simply receiving this promise. And how you do that is acknowledging that you fall short of God's glory, that we cannot measure up to God's perfection, and then you look to Jesus and say, I need help. Please help me. That's it. And if that's you this afternoon, I want you to come and talk to me or Pastor Jason. We'll love to just kind of walk with you through the next steps. But that promise is yours to have. By grace, you don't have to do anything. But if you're a Christian here today, our Christian journey is not about attaining more things from God. It's not about getting more things from God. But rather, a journey of refining what's already been given to us. And refining what's been already defined for us. See, our faith makes us one with Jesus. So you can be sure. We, we can be sure that God truly loves us. That he truly accepts us. That we are worth something. That we are forgiven. That we're not defined by our past mistakes. We're not defined by our shame and guilt. But instead, we are now clothed with the righteousness of Christ. These are the realities that we are called to actually enjoy. Discover them. Uncover them. It's there right in front of you. And how we access all these amazing blessings that we have in the gospel is by walking in obedience. Is by taking a step of faith and trusting and obeying what God has asked us, to, asked us to do. So what does a step of obedience look like for you today? Maybe it is something that you feel God is prompting you to do. Maybe it is to finally forgive, to initiate with that person that you know, right, that you have issues with. It might be just to simply start serving again, praying again, reading the Bible again. Maybe sharing, of, sharing your faith with your coworker or that person that, that God has been impressing upon your hearts. Maybe it's to engage in community again. There are things that God is asking us to do and how we can experience more of the joys of these gospel blessings and promises is actually taking a step of obedience. You know, the beauty of being the people of God's promise is that we are safe, we are secure, because we did nothing to earn this promise, there's nothing that we can do to unearn this promise. This is the unique power of grace. And so what that does, it creates a safe environment for us to actually try and obey 
and actually to stumble. To take another step and try again and to stumble again. Because God's love for us does not change. His promises are yes. It's a guarantee. Jesus rose again. He is alive. The tomb is empty. You are now his. You belong to him forever. And so we can try and fail and we can try and fail. But this is the journey of faith. There's safety and security. In Jesus Christ, we have a greater and better promise. He will never abandon you. He will never forsake you. He only has good for you. And he promises, this is the amazing thing, he's going to come back for you and me. He's going to come back one day, and we will be face to face with our Savior Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, I thank you so much for this crazy story. I thank you for the faith of Abraham and the story of your faithfulness to him. God, this journey of faith is filled with so many obstacles, so many challenges. But you are with us through it all. Your promises is what sustains us. Your promises is what strengthened Abraham through those 25 years. God, I ask that you will strengthen us today. God, we are weak. We are tired. We are exhausted. There's so many crazy things happening in this world. Help us to see you once again. Help us to look at the cross and cling to the cross, knowing that is evidence of your love and your faithfulness to us. Holy Spirit, help us. Help us to take one step at a time to live into the realities of these amazing promises that we received in Christ Jesus. It's in his name we pray. Amen. And at the end of the month, uh, we get to partake in communion, the Lord's Supper. Um, and this is, this is such an amazing gift that God gives to us because he knows how forgetful we are. He knows how quickly we run to these altars, right, that we, we, we sacrifice to. And because we're so forgetful, he gives us this physical, visible, real exercise to remind us of his love for us. This bread representing his body given to us. The wine representing his blood shed for the forgiveness of our sins. As we eat, as we drink, we are reminded that we are his. And what's embedded in this sacrament of communion is a promise, a beautiful promise. A reminder that one day we're waiting for a wedding ceremony where we'll eat a meal similar like this face to face across the table from Jesus our Savior. And so yes, this is for present day nourishment, encouragement, but it also points to a future reality that we're all waiting for. So in a sense, this is kind of a rehearsal dinner for us, or a rehearsal meal, reminding us of that wedding feast that we're all awaiting. But this bread and cup are for those who trust in Jesus. And so if you're here today and you haven't made that step towards Jesus, I just want to ask you to not 
participate. And it's not because we're better than you. It's because we just don't want you to go through religious motions that, that don't encouragement. And so just if you're willing to pray and consider the gospel and ask God to reveal himself to you. But if you're here today, maybe your altars are a little bit shaken. Maybe you're weak, you're tired, you're exhausted, you're discouraged, and you need nourishment. Please come, take, eat, and drink. So there are stations in the back, there are stations in the front. What we're going to do is we're going to take the elements, we're going to take it back to our seats. You can pray, you can reflect, you can stand and worship with us, whatever you feel comfortable doing. But after the first song of response, I'm going to come back up and we're going to eat and drink together. So at this time, I want to invite you to come forward and, and get the elements at this time. You know, to share a meal in Jesus' time was this kind of representation of a shared life. And so when we eat and we drink, we're reminding ourselves that we are one with Jesus. The Lord Jesus on the night, he was betrayed. He took bread and he had given thanks and he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me, the body of Christ. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup saying, this cup is a new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me, the blood of Christ. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. If you're able, I want to invite us to stand and now respond to God and worship together.